Right, I appreciate you being here tonight and uh, hope you are inviting people for the services this weekend. I hope you're praying for the services this weekend and uh, uh, we'll see what God can do here at Grace. Uh, looking forward to it. Many of you probably know the name of Charles Spurgeon, uh, maybe the most influential pastor of the 1800s when he died. Uh, in fact, 60,000 People came to pay their respects, 60,000, just slightly less than when I die. Well, <laughs> well, with all of his ministry, years of ministry, and all of his writings, and all of his sermons, he said he could sum up his theology in four words. He died for me. That's it, isn't it? It's what it's all about. It's what everything in our theology is about. It's what everything in our life is all about. He died for me. It's a great thought. It's a thought that's somehow a little bit hard to get our minds around. God's love for us, so amazing. I've said before how I realized a few years ago that I was, as I was reading Romans 5, that I had misquoted it for a lot of years. Romans 5, 8. I always put it in the past tense when I said it. But God, I said, demonstrated his love toward us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it's actually present tense. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, while he died once for all, past tense, the cross is God's constant, present demonstration to us. And it, it has one message that's been advertised through time, that demonstration of his love for us, a love that cost him so much. You know, we've been making our way through the book of John at all of our campuses, and we've made our way tonight to John's eyewitness account of the crucifixion. And when you look at that as a, as a Christian, there's this strange mix of feelings. There's sorrow, there's shame, there's gratitude, there's joy. So much, and unless you're completely numb, it moves you. And it moves you in so many ways. So we're going to look at it here tonight. John 19, we're picking it up in verse 17. It says there, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Then they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. It went out. He went out bearing his own cross. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine this, this cross being that was somewhere, scholars tell us, between 75 and 100 pounds. He's carrying that cross. Can you imagine having to do that after sweating drops of blood, after being mocked and sped upon and beaten and scourged? No wonder on the way the other Gospels tell us that the Romans had to force Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. All the way to Golgotha, the place of a skull. 
And there they crucified him. Boy, it'd be so easy to read quickly over those words. Our Savior, our Creator, nailed to that cross. You know, back in the 60s, archaeologists found the remains of a man who had been crucified around the same time as Jesus. And I've got a picture here. This is a picture of that man's ankle bone with an eight-inch spike driven through it. So gruesome. Can you imagine the pain? Even more, though, than the physical pain, there was the emotional pain of being separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity. All caused by the spiritual pain, as Peter put it, of burying our sin in his own body. The perfect, holy son of God being made sin for us. So terrible. And typically, they didn't hang these prisoners up high like a lot of pictures show. They were raised up, but just above eye level, so that if you wanted, you could walk by and hurl your insults at a man to his face. It was all excruciating. In fact, that's where that word comes from, excruciating, from crucifixion. What was usually reserved for slaves or for revolutionaries or foreigners or criminals of some kind, sometimes military deserters, other outcasts. What was meant for all those, now Jesus is going through that for us. And here he is hung in the middle between two men. We know Mark says they were two robbers. Some say uh, that the tradition there was to, in the middle was a place of ultimate disgrace. It was a place for the worst criminal. That's where they placed him and that's where Jesus was placed. That place of ultimate disgrace. Numbered with the transgressors as Isaiah 53 tells us. And Pilate hung the inscription, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It was written there, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So he puts his inscription up in three languages. And, and why in three languages? You know, some people say, well, Jerusalem was multicultural. But I think it wasn't just a cultural aid. It was done to give the greatest impact of humiliation as possible. So everyone could read it. Aramaic for the Jews, Latin for the Romans, the soldiers especially, Greek for all the other Gentiles. But think about it. Could it, could it just possibly be that God used this attempt to humiliate Jesus for his own purposes? And that through those languages, he was saying this demonstration of love it's for every man. 
whatever language you speak, whatever culture you come from, it's for you. It's for all of us. The verse 23 says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified him, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whether it shall be, whether, decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It was the custom of the time that the Roman soldiers would take the criminals, they would strip them of their clothes, and they would take those clothes as their own. So four soldiers are assigned to the crucifixion. They divide up Jesus' clothing. And then there's the tunic. And they decide to cast lots for it, to gamble for it, to see who won. Fulfilling another prophecy of scripture. In fact, there's so many scriptural fulfillments in this passage, we're not even mentioning all of them. But don't you think all of this would have been so hard to watch so degrading to watch, to see the blood, the cries, the inhumanity of man, hard for anyone. But think about Mary, his mother. I mean, can you moms imagine this, standing there watching your son die, knowing he was innocent? Verse 25 says, therefore the soldiers did those things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You may remember when Mary and Joseph took the infant Jesus to the temple. Simeon told Mary, hey, this child is destined for the failing and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many may be revealed. And then he said, and a sword will pierce your own soul. Now she had to think when she first heard that, she probably walked away thinking, what was that about? A sword will pierce my soul. Well, now she knows. Her soul's pierced. And with all that Jesus had going on at that moment, I mean, he's winning salvation for the world. He still fulfills the fifth commandment of honoring his mother by placing her in John's care. It's amazing, Jesus dealing with eternal matters, providing salvation for us. And at the same time, he's dealing with the care of his mother. Verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been writ accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, knowing that all things had been accomplished. Fully aware, even in that moment, in control of all things, knowing that it had been accomplished according to the Father's plan, Jesus calls out, I am thirsty. Victims of crucifixion went through intense dehydration, pulling up and pushing up on those spikes, and their muscles and their chest became paralyzed. It was easier to take in a breath. They had to push up to exhale. And in one of those moments when Jesus pushed up, he was able to get, actually it's just one word in the Greek, dipsos. Here at almost the end of the crucifixion, he probably can't get a whole lot of words out, but he's able to get dipso out. Isn't it ironic that the one who was was able to give to us waters of life was thirsty? And another prophecy is fulfilled from Psalm 69. They also gave me gall for my food and my thirst. They, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. I put it on a sponge on a, and on a, the end of a hyssop was a reed that grew as a weed. We first see it in scripture back in Exodus, in Exodus 12 at the Passover. When they dipped the hyssop in the Passover blood and then use it to wipe the blood on the door mantles. Having been given the sour wine, Jesus cried out, it's finished. Which may sound to some like what anyone might say at the end of their life. But he's not saying, I'm finished. He's not saying, we're finished. It is finished. Those words say so much. Actually, again, it's one word in the Greek, tetelestai. Tetelestai. He's talking about something that's been brought to an end. It was used fairly commonly in the culture. It was used by slaves when they finished their work for the day, what the master had told them to do. Tetelestai. It's done. It was used by the priests when they look at a sacrificial lamb and they evaluated and they made sure that it was perfect, that it was complete to telestai. Artists, when they completed a paint, painting, they finished it, they looked, stood back and they said, to telestai. Merchants, when a debt was paid off, at the top of the bill, they would write the word to telestai. See, our debts been paid in full. We know we had a debt we couldn't pay, but our debt's been paid in full. It is finished. That word tells us about Jesus. It tells us about his humility, his willingness to follow his father's will. It tells us about his priorities, about his purpose. It tells us that his suffering and his death were accomplished. It also tells us about our salvation that it is complete. There's nothing we have to add to it. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing lacking in it. It is perfect. Our salvation is exactly what the Father requires. It's perfect, perfect to save us, perfect to satisfy the Father. It is finished to tell us die. And he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. Which is different if you think about it. You know, if we died hanging on a cross, normally we would die and our head would fall forward. That's not what it's talking about. Jesus was in full control. Even at the point of death, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Full control. Text goes on, verse 31, then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and he broke the and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Jesus gave up his spirit on this day of preparation. They're getting ready for the Sabbath of Passover week. And the Romans wanting to appease the Jewish leaders who didn't want their land to be defiled by dead bodies hanging on a cross. So they came and sent the order to break the legs. They did this sometimes. Not, it, was, it was a little unusual. Breaking the legs is not the norm. But sometimes they would do that. They would do it if there was a time crunch, basically. They wanted the crucifixion to last as long as possible because they were into the agony. Breaking legs would seem like more torture, which I'm sure it was, but that was not its purpose. Its purpose was to hurry up the process when it became necessary. When the soldiers came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. These experts in death saw that he was dead. See, Jesus didn't just pass out. He wasn't under some influence from what he'd been given to drink. These experts in death saw that he was dead. And if anybody had a question remaining on that, then this one soldier pierces his side with a spear and out came blood and water. We're told that was post-mortem evidence that his heart may have literally burst. He's dead. There's no doubt. And we're told this whole account by the Apostle John, he who has seen, and he's telling us, I am telling you what I saw. This is all true. It's not a fable. There's no mistake. He's dead. Without a bone being broken, 
more prophecy being fulfilled. Scripture tells us not a bone. Over and over again, Psalm 34, Psalm 22, back in Exodus 12, Leviticus 9, the Passover lamb, no bones to be broken. And then the piercing, a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. Think about it. If Jesus hadn't died when he did, his legs would have been broken and then his side wouldn't have been pierced and you could take your Bible and throw it away. But God knows all the intricate details of history. Not only knows them, he has them in his control. See, what happened that day was not an accident. It was not out of his control. No, what happened that day happened because he loved us. That's what we remember on this Good Friday. That's what you can be convinced of tonight as we remember his sacrifice. That story with all the pain and all the struggle was because he loved you.